0: What's happening, everybody? Spencer here. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Um, I'm so excited about this. I'm such a huge fan of the Godfather series. I know that's not really a unique take, but I just adore these films so much. And as soon as I saw last fall that the 50th anniversary is coming in March, uh, I started planning this, this episode and really been looking forward to it. Just wanted to give everyone a heads up before we get started. Uh, I did do this over Zoom and zoom only wants to cooperate so much i cleaned up the sound uh the best i could but uh it's certainly audible and the conversation came out really great i think so thank you for listening and i hope you enjoy up to all the cinephiles out there. Welcome to another episode of the Marquee Spotlight coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I am your host, Spencer Bailey, and my co-host is still out. Uh, Chelsea will be back soon, but it was very important for me to do an episode on the 50th anniversary uh, of The Godfather. I wanted to make sure that I got this episode out. uh, So... In order to do that, I needed a guest, Uh, so I reached out to the only person I know that has thought about The Godfather more than I have, my own personal conciliary, John Bailey, but I just call him Dad. What's up, Pops?
1: How are you this morning?
0: Uh, I am good. Can you hear everything okay?
1: Yes, I hear fine.
0: Okay, great. We're doing this over Zoom because Dad is still in uh, Louisiana. So, Dad, I appreciate you doing this with me. Oh, you're welcome. Um, So, first of all, you know, I do want to emphasize that, uh, you know, my whole life, you were a huge Godfather fan. Um, But in addition to that, uh, would you please tell everyone, uh, for most of my life, what did you do for a living?
1: I was a college professor for, I started teaching college in 77 and I retired in 2013.
0: Specifically, what subject though?
1: I still, well, I, most of it was uh, as a history professor. Uh, I started out as an English professor, but I went back to grad school on history. So I wanted to make that distinction because I
0: think that the Godfather films do have a historical significance, both in terms of uh, the history of film, uh, as well as, you know, the history of well, the Italian mafia um, in America. So I'd really like to start there, Dad. Could you kind of talk about a little bit, not, we don't need to dive deep, but the history of the Italian mafia America and how it kind of compares and contrasts to the family we see in The Godfather?
1: Okay, well, um, I guess I should qualify this by saying that my major fields of research were not um, late 19th or 20th century America, but this is stuff that I picked up just studying history or reading things. Um, the mafia, uh, so I'm not a real expert on, on crime families of the mafia, but in general, um, the mafia came to the United States, um, in, in its biggest form with what we call the new immigration period, which runs from approximately 1880 to 1920, uh, when urban immigration was, was, uh, really beginning to fill out or round out. And, um, It was most of the mafia. In fact, the code of the mafia says that in order to be truly part of the family, you have to be Sicilian by birth or have Sicilian parents. And um, so they came up from Italy and they began to uh, in the poorer neighborhoods and especially in the cities like Chicago, New York, New Orleans, uh, the mafia began to to run crime operations to give people protection from local police whom they couldn't trust and the former organized crime leaders, some of which were Italian called the Black Hand. Um, And they organized quickly because they attracted younger members off of street gangs or or young guys who um, who felt that they were dispossessed by society. Um, And it gradually grew as an urban movement from Italian immigration. Now, I want to qualify that the vast majority of Italian immigrants We're not members of the Mafia. Uh, There's, I mean, I think most intelligent Americans understand this, but it's always something you have to remind people of. The Mafia as a operative organization actually began in New Orleans before it really got going anyplace else. And um, it was uh, expanded from there because New Orleans, if I remember this correctly, New Orleans by the end of the 19th century had the second largest number of Italian immigrants next to New York. Italian immigrants, leading Italian immigrant cities were actually um, New York, New Orleans, and believe it or not, San Francisco. Uh, Chicago had its share of of, uh, Italian immigrants as well, but those port cities seemed to to start off before anybody else and having a significant number of Southern Italians. Um, I might also add that uh, between 1880 and 2000, Southern Italians uh, came during that period, prior to 1800, in the early 19th century, what we call the old period of immigration. Most of Italian immigrants were Northern Italians who lived closer to uh, the rest of Europe and the Alps. And they were not, don't consider themselves, at least at that time, they didn't consider themselves quite similar. Does uh, that enough or?
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, that was good. So certainly the Sicilian element in there, and then in terms of the way they operated, in, I mean, was I, I feel like the Godfather was more romanticized the way the mafia really was. Would you find that to be accurate?
1: Yeah. By the time the mafia became well organized um, by the early 1930s, um, when they found they could gain power, and of course, the thing that really enhanced the, the mafia's influence and power was prohibition, the the outlaw of the manufacturing sales of liquor or, <clears throat> or alcoholic beverages in the United States. Um, this was like an open ticket for them to uh, to expand economically. And they also dabbled in if, if they were selling their, you know once they branched out from Italian neighborhoods, began to sell what they could purvey to the rest of society. Uh, They ran gambling houses, houses of prostitution uh, in poor neighborhoods. They ran uh, gambling numbers, which is like a lottery uh, where people for a couple of bucks could buy a number and and hope that they won. Um, But Prohibition really sent the mafia into the next level of of, uh, economic prosperity. And also it raised the level of violence Um, in Chicago with Al Capone, who was, by the way, was not Sicilian, as I recall. I think it was from Naples. But he worked uh, for a Sicilian representative in Chicago and, of course, ended up taking the over the entire city of Chicago during Prohibition. And because Prohibition is so lucrative, various gangs would have territorial disputes about where they could manufacture and sell liquor or where they could import it. Um, because of the extreme level of violence that grew out of these disputes, and some, I'm sure the public is already familiar with some of these instances, um, <clears throat> The younger Italian immigrants from New York um, got together, the, the leader of whom was Charles Luciano, and he his best friend was not Sicilian. Uh, his name was Meyer Lansky, and they both grew up in the same neighborhood and realized that they had to do away with some of the old traditions, that they had to operate like a business, and they had to think about allowing people into the organization, that is the whole corporate unit, who were not Sicilian. So, they created what was called the commission, where they divided up territories across the United States, put a, a member in charge of each territory, and in order to cut down the violence, they said that um, any any violence that was done, any major decision that was made, had to be voted on by the entire commission. And it worked pretty well while uh, while throughout the rest of the thirties, up until about the time World War II started.
0: That's kind of like the five the five families meeting in the first movie, huh? <laughs>
1: Excuse me. Yeah, exactly. It's it was that was kind of a mirror image of what I'm talking about. Um, They they held most of their meetings in New York. Yeah,
0: it was funny you bring up Luciano because I was kind of thinking that if there was one actual person that could be compared to some of these movies, I think Vito Corleone is kind of like Luciano in that he kind of has this moral code, Uh, you know, doesn't want to hurt innocence. It's about business. And I was watching All the deleted scenes from the movies, because I have the box set and there's a bunch of deleted scenes. There's a deleted scene from Godfather 2 where De Niro's playing young Vito. We'll get into that in a minute. But uh, it's where um, he meets Hyman Roth as a young man for the first time. Young Clemenza brings him. But his name is like Hyman. uh, It's a different name. But Vito says, well, who do you look up to? And he says, Arnold Rothstein. He goes, "Okay, from now you're Hyman Rothstein. Uh, And I was like, well, this is Luciano and Meyer Lansky.
1: Yeah, uh, Rothstein was um, one of the innovators of organized crime politics. Um, He was credited with fixing the 1919 World Series, and he was the mentor for both Luciano and Meyer Lansky and convinced them that they they had to get rid of these old traditions and superstitions if they were going to truly uh, combine all the gangs and be economically successful.
0: Yeah, and if anybody wants to see more about these characters, I highly recommend the show Boardwalk Empire. It's one of my favorite shows of all time, and all of these characters um, are explored at a very deep level. Uh, yeah, so but David, you have
1: to. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, but you have to remember it's it's a fictional series, and you have to kind of take some of it with a grain of salt. Yeah, just be entertained. Just watch the show. And be entertained. <laughs>
0: uh, so, Dad, let's get into the movie. So, prior to like the Godfather coming around, I've, would you would you say it's pretty accurate that what we mostly got was like the old gangster movies with like James Cagney and things like that?
1: Yeah, um, the era of the gangster movies probably two of the most famous actors in that regard were George Raft and James Cagney and John Garfield, but there were others. And uh, by the by the time World War II was over, you saw fewer and fewer. Um, mob movies or traditional gangster movies being made. I uh, also would throw in Edward G. Robinson, although he's the one that's most famously imitated, um, right. calling, calling people dirty rats and all that. But he did actually very few of these. He did one or two. And forever, well, you got labeled with it. I always thought it was interesting, too, that, you know, the
0: mafia and the gangsters being so deeply Italian in real life, but prior to The Godfather, most of these films were not, being depicted by Italians because I think James Cagney was Irish, wasn't he?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Edward G. Robinson was Jewish. Uh, Cagney was Irish and Cagney grew up in, uh, the East side of man, lower East side of Manhattan. He was born in the 19th century. So he was, he knew about street toughness as a kid. Um, but you're right. Yeah. They, they weren't Italians. And I don't know that the early gangster movies were necessarily concerned about. Ethnic values—they were just mostly concerned about showing a good action movie between good guys and bad guys. Well, Dad, I don't know that Hollywood
0: in general was too worried about ethnic values at that time, but uh, <laughs> uh but you know, so the God getting to the Godfather. You know, I even remember um as a really little kid, uh, you had taken me to Blockbuster, and it must have been the third movie had come out on VHS or something because it was on the shelf, and I saw it with the logo with the hand and the strings, and I remember even then you saying these movies are really, really good. Like that memory sticks out of my head every time I see the logo. So, you know, that's the legacy of The Godfather was always in our house because of of you. So do you remember the book? The book comes out 1969, Mario Puzo. Did you read it?
1: No, I did not. It came out when I was in high school, actually, in 1969. And um, I found out a lot about it, about Five years ago in fact i think i related to you in a conversation i'd read it read a couple of articles and i couldn't sleep one night on the making of the godfather Uh, and then i that really filled in a lot of details but in high school i was aware of the book and then when the movie came out i knew it was connected to to the novel in fact the novel stayed on the new york times bestseller list for 67 weeks so it was it was quite popular a popular read before the movie came out Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's that's the one thing I know about the book was that the success was was very high. Everybody was talking about it. Now, I didn't realize until I was researching for this episode that the book is just the first movie. I I always assumed the book was the entire story. So it's really just one more incredible aspect of the series that Coppola, who this movie fell in his lap, gets with Puzo uh, to complete the story in movie form in such an incredible way.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it I haven't read too much about Puzo's cooperation, but I think everybody understood that he had a great deal of input on Godfather, Two, especially.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, him and Coppola were, were mean, total collaboration together. So getting into the movie and here in a minute, I want to talk about it famously was in pre-production hell. Talk about when the movie came out. Did you see it in theaters?
1: Yeah, I went and I went and saw it. It came out as I recall. Well, at least where I was living, it came out in the spring of 71. And 71 was the year it was released. Um, 72. I'm What's sorry, 71? you're right. Yeah. No, 72. I thought it was seven seven. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was. I remember I was, I guess I was a sophomore in college. Seems to me it was, yeah, it was spring of seventy two. I'm sorry. That's what I was thinking. I just carried the year over. Um 72, yeah. And uh, I went with a friend to uh, to watch it one evening at the local downtown theater. That's when I first saw it. And so talk about that, your first impressions. What just blew you away about it? Well, you said at the beginning I was a huge Godfather fan. I don't know that I'm huge, but I, I, I think I approached the Godfather from, as you said, more of an historical and artistic technique than just actually the story itself. The story itself, I, I never really cared for um, as far as the plot goes. Uh, and even at the time, I mean, I wasn't one of these people who was uh, profoundly opposed to violence in the cinema in the early seventies, uh, people were still getting over Bonnie and Clyde, which was in 68, they considered a, a transition and an uptick in violence because of the use of, um, uh, what do you call those things that squibs? Squids because of, yeah, the liberal use well, of Well, that, that Bonnie and Clyde mm-hmm. scene is even
0: now is just, I, I mean, I know that's, it's an accurate depiction of what happened to Bonnie and Clyde, but my God, it's jarring to watch even now.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, Warren Beatty produced, it, it was very well produced. Um, and actually it wasn't <laughs> when you when I've read about Bonnie and Clyde since then, and it wasn't far from the truth in terms of them really not being very competent bank robbers. Um, so people were starting to become a little bit inured or used to the idea of a lot of blood uh, and violence in the movies. I think the Godfather was a little bit extreme. there were more there were worse movies, but they weren't really weren't considered uh, solid pictures. you know there were fringe movies that were more violent, but uh, the Godfather brought this home to middle America, white middle America, in a big way. Well, I love what
0: you just said about the plot because one of the notes I wrote down in rewatching these movies for this was it really is it was apparent to me this time that you know the plot really is secondary to just Michael's descent. Which is which is the focus of the movie. It's not the plot.
1: Yeah, I think in the first picture, it's a it's a trade-off between the you know the the health, um, the physical decline of Don Corleone and the necessary, or at least what Michael thought was his necessary uh rise or his his willingness to fill the void of his father, even when he was recovering in the hospital. Um, and there is a bit of a sort of tragic feeling there that's carried out in the next two movies.
0: Well yeah, but I remember you know you bring that up. The first time I watched the movie, I think I said to you and I had not watched Godfather 2 yet, but I saw the first one when I was really young and I said to you, I kind of feel sorry for Michael and you were surprised by that and I said, well the movie starts with him wanting to separate himself from that part of his family while still loving his family. He tells Kay it's it's my family it's not me. You know, he wanted to go to college, he served his country in World War II, and it seemed like the only reason he felt the need to get involved was because, well, of course, on the top layer, his father was shot, and on the bottom layer, I think deep down he knew his other two brothers were were idiots.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, and Michael, what makes it worse is Michael had a college degree when the first movie began, so he was both a decorated war veteran and college educated, and he had at that time in america if you had those two things behind you the world was open you could do uh pretty well choose your own path and uh, in fact his father uh, don corleone mentions that to him toward the end of the first movie well, so yeah, yeah it, it is it is yeah you're right about that it's
0: let's talk about the uh the production craziness so now you've studied this more than me but the story goes Coppola was living with George Lucas, and they had a production company together. Coppola, yeah. is, famous, Coppola is famously a, a bad businessman, and they were hemorrhaging money. But remind me, how did this project
1: get dropped in his lap? Well, it's the story's a little involved, but in fact, you gave away the punchline to the story, which is that uh, when I read the story, they held back Lucas's name until the end. It was actually a couple of articles until the end of the first article, that they weren't living together, but they were business partners in San Francisco. And um, what happened was, I mean, this is why I, when I finished these two articles, the first thing I said to myself was they should have forgotten about the Godfather plot in the novel and turned this into a movie because the making of the movie was more fascinating than the movie itself. But um, the head of Gulf Oil in about 1966, 67, I guess from 67, um, was living in the West, upper West Side of New York and felt now you gotta you gotta hear this that here's a guy who's a multi millionaire which is akin to a multi billionaire now uh, who felt slighted because he wasn't invited to the best parties of all the uh, the wealthy people on the and the celebrities on the Upper West Side so he found out that Paramount Pictures had come on the block and was for sale and he who knew nothing about movie making or wasn't really that interested in art bought paramount studios lock stock and barrel so that he'd get invited to all the right parties he figured that as a head of a movie studio he'd have an automatic invitation to a lot of parties which just i found that just incredible so he takes over takes us over and here you have an oil man with no background in any kind of art really owning the entire movies one of the most important movie studios in america so so but
0: but Coppola hadn't done nothing at this point. So how did, just quick, and you could just well, quickly see su- 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 summarize it, but how did it fall into his lap?
1: Well, yeah, here's the summary. Um, the head of Gulf Oil, once he had Paramount, realized he couldn't run it himself. So he, he had a business partner whom he made uh, president of Paramount, but he said we needed a head of production. The business partner says, yeah, I know a guy who has some background in movies. It wasn't extensive, but he'll know what to do with the studio. Um, so there the three of them are and uh, uh, they started to get all these calls around uh 69 in that area there from other studios and they said look the other studios have done this research and they said we found out that you own the movie rights to the godfather um are you going to make it in a movie and if you're not would you sell the rights to us and three of them started looking at each other and on plus, uh, do we own the movie rights to the Godfather? And so they had their head of uh, properties check. And sure enough, they, they did. They had the contract signed, sealed, and delivered before the book was even finished. And they didn't even know it. So they decided that, that they debated whether to sell it or make the movie. They finally decided to make the movie because uh, one of them, I don't remember which one said, I've got this The angle. I know why. Uh, in fact, well, the first thing they said was, Let's check with, I don't know, 10 leading directors in the business, uh, some of the best directors in the business, and feel them out and ask them if they'd be interested in directing this as a movie. Uh, Evidently, they universally were turned down, and none of the directors wanted to touch it with a 10-foot pole because they thought gangster movies were passe and wouldn't make any money. So they debated further between the three of them, and and one of them finally said, I know it, I got it, which is more kind of uh, absurdity. He said, the reason these movies haven't worked is that previous to this, they've all been directed by Jews. So what we need to do is find an Italian director to direct this movie, and he'll do it right because he's Italian. (laughs) (laughs) And so they said, fine. And it just so happened that they had an Italian director. Um, Before Paramount was sold, um, Francis Ford Coppola in San Francisco had an art film studio that was being subsidized by Paramount, almost entirely subsidized by Paramount because Paramount needed it as a tax write-off. They knew that these art movies that Coppola was making weren't going to make any money, so they could use their funding of his studio as as an income tax write-off. But after the Gulf guy bought it, they realized they didn't need it as a tax write-off anymore, so they stopped funding him. But they happened to remember that there's this guy in San Francisco that used to be attached to Paramount. So they asked him to come on up for a meeting, and that's basically how that happened.
0: Well, and I love, too, that Coppola didn't even want to do it. And George Lucas said, listen, you're going to do this picture. We need the money. We're, we're hemorrhaging. We're in debt, right.
1: you know. Right. Coppola had a profound, he was revolted by the novel. Uh, and what's interesting is that when he went up for the initial meeting, they they said, have you read the book? And he said, no. So they gave him a copy of the book. And they said, well, take this back and read it and come meet with us again in about 10 days and tell us what you think. Well, Coppola comes back and he says, "I would just, I don't do pornography, is what he said. Uh, this is a pornographic book and I'm not going to shoot it. And somebody said, did you read the whole thing? No, I just read the first chapter. And they said, go back and read the whole thing and then come and talk to us. Well, when he did that, he had ameliorated his, his attitude a little bit and decided that, yeah, he possibly could do it, um, but he wasn't sure. So he went back to his home in San Francisco to his office and George Lucas, yeah, grabbed him, sat him down and said, look, the banks are going to lock the doors. So I don't care if this picture makes a dime. They're going to give you a salary, a sizable salary to direct it. So direct it because we need the money. So Copeland sort of took it from there. Well, it's interesting because as the boy worked
0: on it, he clearly did care about it because he stood up for the things he was thought were right. He didn't let the the production company suits walk all over him. And we can get into that. The production was crazy. In fact, they they trusted Coppola so little that they had a second director following him around that. And I heard this from Duvall and James Caan. They said they were just waiting the second he messed up too much. They were just going to give him the boot and let this other director take over uh, amongst many other things. And then we can talk about the casting choices he fought for most notably Brando. And every meeting he went to, he kept bringing Brando up and they, they, they told a story they finally said, "I don't want to hear the name Marlon Brando in this another one of these meetings again, and Coppola gently said, "What do I have to do to get brando and they this is what they said they said he's going to he's going to pay a deposit to do a screen test to cover any shenanigans he might do and and Coppola agreed to that, and then of course, they had the meeting where Brando got excited and left the room and came back in with the Kleenex
1: water in his mouth. And, and Coppola was like, this is exactly what I wanted. Yeah, that was uh, Coppola's first meeting with Brando to feel him out if he wanted to play the part. And uh, Coppola didn't expect that Brando would would already be able to get into character immediately. Um, but that just shows you what a talented actor Brando was. And he was box office poisoned by the end of the 60s because of the debacle he did when he uh, produced his own uh, version of Mutiny on the Bounty and bought... I think he used studio money, I could be wrong about this, to buy a bunch of property in Tahiti, maybe a lot of his own money, and it, the thing went on forever, and it didn't do well at the box office, so he was kind of frozen out of Hollywood after that. Well, and then, you know, everyone else hadn't really done much. He brings in Robert
0: Duvall, who had a bit part in Bullet, um, and then he brings in uh, uh, James Caan, who hadn't done too much.
1: Diane Keaton Um,
0: who hadn't done too much either. And then of course Pacino who had only done stage play. And I even, you know, in the interviews, Robert Duvall said me and James Conn had seen Pacino on the stage and just thought he was incredible. And they show some of the screen tests in the, in the documentary of the three of them working. And you see in the early screen tests, Pacino was not there yet. And it, you see why there were some concerns, but Duvall and Khan and Coppola were really standing by Pacino. But it got so bad that as the screen tests were coming back, um, they had a screen test where Pacino's in the military uniform with Diane Keaton. And they strong armed Coppola into making Jimmy or James Khan do the same screen test as Michael. And when you I watch it, that, yeah, when you watch it, you're like – it's not bad, but it's not as good as Pacino.
1: Yeah, because what seeing that screen test after you watch the movie two or three times, it's just kind of absurd. You can't imagine uh James Conn playing Michael. And it's just um, yeah. but yeah, and, and the thing is that when he when Coppola after their third meeting or so, they told Coppola to go back and come up with some possibilities for cast members. Well, being an art movie director, he was aware of these young actors that hadn't done much and uh but he knew he wanted brando and it was kind of comical in the meeting when he first suggested brando that they there was just an upper no we don't want brando and then he kept list but he kept listening he said and al pacino and diane keaton and then he stopped to argue for brando and, and the guys were saying then they got more upset about the rest of the cast they said yeah and never mind that who's al pacino and he was going on and said yeah yeah yeah. but who's al pacino <laughs> well <'Cause>, yeah
0: <laughs> well you know so the screen tests get better and better and when they start actually filming, they were still trying to get Pacino replaced. And Coppola had this great idea. He goes, "All right, let's film the diner scene with Salazzo. And once they finished that scene and sent it to uh, the executives, never heard another word about Pacino. They just let the movie be completed. Right. Uh, funny enough, did you know that? Uh, and it, it's on the DVD. But uh, De Niro did a screen test for for James Con- or uh, Sonny. No, I didn't know that. No. Yeah, it's the scene where uh, uh, Sonny's telling Michael, it's not like the war. You can't just shoot somebody a mile away. you got to walk up and bada-bing, pop them in the head. But it's it's De Niro. Yeah, so that's why when they did the second one, Coppola remembered him from that screen test. And he had done Mean Streets in between. And right. so they brought him back to play Young Vito. Um, right. So – yeah, we were talking about the the plot. You know, the the beginning of the movie is almost episodic. You get the the wedding, then you get you know the L.A. scene with the horse head, and then it kind of really gets into the meat of the story. But there's no wasted moments. The movie's three hours long and it flows so perfectly.
1: Yeah, I I think you're probably right. And in fact, uh, it was over edited as far as I was con- concerned because there are a couple confusing moments um, where they mention uh one or two people that aren't in the first movie and they said who are they talking about well it's because the real references those people were on the cutting room floor they had they were edited down and i think later Coppola kind of regretted that so he did a as you know they did like a fourth version where he combined movies one and two but he did it in terms of chron- chronology in terms of year we start off with the boy michael corleone coming to ellis island and then we follow I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, Vito Corleone coming to, I'm sorry, coming to Ellis Island and then growing up and then becoming a local mob chief. And, and then they go on for the rest of it from there. And when you watch that way, it really makes a lot of sense. But what Coppola was able to do is include a lot of the edited scenes that uh, he couldn't include in the first one. So all of a sudden, some of the references in the first one made perfect sense to me when I saw that. Well, right. So for instance, you'd always told me about the, del- the deleted scene, and
0: I've seen it now. Where how they know Polly betrayed the family? Because in the movie, they're just like, "Who called out sick? Polly? Oh, well, he definitely, you know, is a traitor." Well, you don't know that for sure. Well, if you see the deleted scene, they they get his phone records for the days he was out, right? And they tie, they tie his phone calls back to
1: uh, a feuding group. Right. Yeah. No, they had solid evidence, but that doesn't come out in the original movie. Right. So
0: um, but it is it's incredible, like all this young acting talent he got before anybody knew who they were. And they all go on to be some of the greatest actors of all time. And I also think it's interesting how mad everyone got at him for putting his sister, Talia Shire, in the movie, crying nepotism. And she's not great in the first one, but she goes on to be really good. And she gets nominated for an Oscar for the second one and Rocky. Uh,
1: So I think it worked out. Yeah, and I think some of her best work was away from The Godfather. Um, uh, She was pretty good in in part two, but you're right. uh, The true actress comes out when she does movies that aren't connected to The Godfather. Um, Uh, She was pretty pretty good. She was very good in the third one, I might add. Oh, she was. We'll we'll get to that. But just talking about the characters, you know
0: what I always... What makes the movie so good is that nobody in these movies is a good person. Uh, But you still kind of respect him. Like you respect Vito. He's so menacing when he, he's like the opening scene, the undertaker him for help wants revenge on the men who attacked his daughter. And instead of just obliging him, Vito basically in an eloquent way demands his respect. And it just, that's all you need to know about. It's a fully fleshed out character just in that exchange. It's just incredible.
1: Yeah, it's there's a lot of us. That that's my favorite part of the movie is that that first what is it? Maybe ten minutes when uh, the local mortician is trying to get uh, uh, Vito Don Corleone to uh, to murder somebody to revenge for his daughter, and um, he tries to send he send the impression that's not why I'm the way I am that I'm here. He said in other words, I'm here to take care of my community, and he said you didn't want me to do that. You, you, throughout your entire entire relationship, you've never really considered me a friend. What have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you'd come to me in friendship, then the scum that wound your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then he would become my enemies. And then they would fear you.
0: Be my friend.
1: Godfather. That the whole the whole kernel of what started the mafia comes out of that conversation that there was nobody to protect the helpless immigrants in these in these uh, poor sections of the city. So they developed their own their own leaders. Well,
0: and yes, and that's something I was going to say. And we could flesh this out more when we get to Godfather, too. But that's the big difference between Vito and Michael. Was that Vito came to power helping others, and Michael? I don't even know what his. It was just this, you know, insatiable need to stay in power, and then in paranoia a little bit sets in, and it's just you know it, what seems to start. Gen- Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say what well, seemed to start as good intentions of Michael to help the family turn it. He became a monster.
1: Right. Um, it, it, there was kind of a generational. Um, Contrast there that the older generation knew what they were doing. They didn't have Michael was well taken care of his whole life, so he didn't really have to think about what his purpose was. Uh, as as Don Corleone says more than once in the first movie, he always know, knew what he was supposed to do. Uh, his path was sort of already made for him. But Michael Michael never really found himself. I guess that's the best way to put it. While we're talking about Vito,
0: you say that's your favorite part. So. That's your favorite veto scene over
1: his speech to the five families? Yeah, it is. that would have to be my second favorite or maybe his the last conversation he has with Michael in the, near the garden. Uh, one of those two. But but what I like about the uh, the meeting with the heads of the families is that they accused him of of holding back on his power, not sharing the, the judges that he owns or the cops that he owns with the rest of them. And uh, he stood up and gave a great speech. He says, when have I ever, and I always remember this, when have I ever refused an accommodation? I never have. And they couldn't argue with him because every time somebody needed a favor, he'd always do it. But he said, except for this one time, because it involved heroin. And I didn't want to get involved in that. And he was right. He like predicted the future. Yeah, exactly. And that was a scene also I liked because the true conspirator against the Corleone uh, revealed himself to Don to Don Corleone showed how smart he was. He knew uh, that Brozzini was the one behind Sonny's murder and all the other things that had occurred.
0: But I like the moral dilemmas that the movie makes you deal with, right? Like Michael killing Carlo at the end. it It feels right and wrong at the same time. and I, I love that scene because I remember the first time I saw that scene, I'd never seen the whole movie, but I walked into the living room and you were you were finishing the movie. And when he says to him, come on, Carlo, do you think I'd make my sister a widow? And you said to the TV, you're like, yes, you lying son of a bitch. I mean, <laughs> well, thanks, Spencer. <laughs> well, well, but, but that but that's the crux of it, right? Like <laughs> Carlo sucks. Carlo did betray the family and get Sonny right. killed while also beating his wife. Right. You kind of want him to die. But the way Michael does, you're not a Michael side either. It's just that's what makes the story so good.
1: The thing that's problematic about that is, yeah, Carlo was no good. I mean, he was a loser. But he never really had any any purpose in the family. I mean, Sonny was careful to keep him at arm's length. And, in fact, Don says in one scene, in fact, at the beginning of the movie, what about Connie's new husband? He said, give him a job but never let him in on family business. Um, so you really, Michael could have sent this guy to Timbuktu or someplace. I mean, he could have exiled him. He didn't have to kill him. But, you know, it would have – I mean – he was never going to come back and bother the family. But I guess that's just my take on it.
0: And then the Las Vegas scene, um, do you think, and I want to get into John Cazale once we get to the second movie, but uh, when he tells Fredo, don't ever turn against the family again, when he took Mo Green's side, did you feel an inkling of something was coming? What did you think about that the first time you saw it?
1: Yeah, I did feel an inkling. I don't, I don't know that I, you know, that that I projected mentally that he was gonna eventually kill Fredo, but you knew he meant business. And, um, you know, even even his dad dealt with Fredo by making sure, again, that Fredo had a job, but he wasn't given anything important. And so I figured, well, also Michael could have just been telling him to behave himself, you know?
0: Yeah. Last real question I wanna ask you about the first one. The scene with Salazzo in the diner why do you think that's the one scene
1: in italian with no subtitles you know i haven't thought about that because when i first saw the movie uh there were no subtitles at all oh okay uh, wait wait a minute check that no i don't think i could be wrong but i don't remember in that uh, conversation in the italian restaurant that there was i don't think there were subtitles when he was talking to Salazzo. There isn't any. There
0: never has been. And I I can't I've never been able to find a reason why. I'm sure it's out there somewhere. But um, well,
1: they didn't speak that much in Italian. And you could even if you've had a little bit of French or Spanish, you could kind of dope out what they were saying. But most people probably didn't. You know.
0: All right, Dad, what do you think is age worse about The Godfather between Sonny's Miss Punch on Carlo? Or the fact that uh, uh, Michael's uh, the actress who played Michael's wife in Sicily was actually 16?
1: um well she was of course different different countries have different laws about you know a lot of countries that um the age of consent is 16. in fact some some states in this country that'll probably change in their future the age of consent for doing nudity and things like that is 16. didn't age great
0: but sonny smith punch also did not age great
1: what do you mean? mean when he's beating up
0: Carlo. Carlo, and he whiffs that punch. He's like half a foot away from his face.
1: Yeah, I guess I never paid much attention to that. But
0: All right. So, yeah, first Godfather, um, 97% Rotten Tomatoes, won Best Picture, Screenplay, and Brando won. Uh, no, other nominees, uh, incredible. Uh, just in supporting, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Pacino, all nominated, three guys from one movie, nominated one category, Coppola was uh, nominated. Costume design, sound, editing, and the score were all nominated. By the way, the score we didn't talk about, Nino Rota, uh, do you remember that score really striking you the first time you heard it? It's a, it's incredible.
1: Uh, no. I, I thought it was you know standard Italian, 19th century romantic Italian music. I guess it didn't, didn't hit me really hard. So,
0: movie's a big success, and now Coppola finds himself in a different situation where now the studio is begging him to make the sequel, begging him. And he doesn't want to. He said, I'll produce it, but I won't direct it. You know who he suggested to direct it? I have no idea. Martin Scorsese. Oh, really? Yep. Uh-huh. I'll be darned. And, and Martin Scorsese had a movie that year. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Um, and he's well, also I've been.
1: A couple- you know how they knew each other? Do they know each other before they were in the movies full time or?
0: Uh, I, maybe, but you know, Scorsese was up and coming. He mean streets was the movie that really put him on the map. Right. And yeah. that came out the year prior. So he probably knew him for that, but for some reason it's, it fell through. And so, so I love this. Coppola comes back with a list of, of demands. He goes, all right, I'll direct. Here's what I want. I want to write and direct the conversation, which is also an incredible movie. Uh, I want to write the screenplay for the great Gatsby with Robert Redford. And uh, he wanted to like direct, uh, I think an opera or something with the San Francisco orchestra. Um, And he got all of it.
1: That's really, yeah. He, his life turned around. I mean, he always was talented, but you know, he never had anybody to appreciate it before the Godfather. So brings
0: Mario Puzo back to continue the story together. A lot of people find The Godfather 2 to be better than the first one. I think you and I, I don't know. I just know that I'd rather watch the first one. Um, but, I mean, we're really splitting hairs. I think they're just both, they're both arguably, you know, two of the greatest movies ever.
1: I had to actually see Godfather 2 a couple of times before I picked up on I, I think it was, is it the plot? Switches make it very confusing and some of the references make it confusing. I mean, at least the first time I saw it. I, I think I was in college when it came out and I, I went saw it at theater. Um, but I actually had to watch it another couple times where I, I put everything together. I don't know if you had the same feeling.
0: Yeah, I the first time I saw it, uh I definitely remember getting lost. Uh and, and on subsequent rewatches, I uh looking back, I'm I'm surprised I got lost because it makes sense now, but That's also because I've seen it multiple times and you do pick up on things, but going from the past to the present, uh, going from Miami to Havana, you know, back to Nevada. I mean, like Tahoe, uh, it's, it's a lot going on.
1: Right. Yeah. And I never got the idea. It took me a second watch. I think before I realized that uh, when Fredo gets that call in the middle of the night and he said, you didn't tell me this was going to happen. That I, The first time I saw the movie, I didn't tumble to the fact that Fredo was behind the uh, shooting of Michael, you know, the, the machine gunning of Michael's bedroom. Right. Um,
0: so right off the bat, the way the movie opens is absolutely brilliant. You go from the first movie that opens with this big, beautiful Italian wedding. Everyone's drinking wine. Italian music's being played. Um, everyone there is Italian. Um then you open up with this party in the second one, and it's just, you know, w- completely, uh, it's like, it's like cardboard cuts out, cutouts of people. It's like, right. it's all fake and shallow. Instead of wine, it's champagne. Um, right. You know, uh, Frankie Five Angels tries to make the band play Italian music, and they start playing Pop Goes the Wheels and make fun of him. And right. the the senator's like,
1: Mike and Pat. <laughs> But from a historical standpoint, that makes sense because Michael was chasing the material American dream and he wasn't thinking like uh, the head of a mafia family or an uh, Italian protected family anymore. Um, but everybody was, the United States is becoming more melded between different ethnic groups at that time. And, um, well, at, and least the tra- the, at least the traditional ethnic immigration groups. But-
0: Well, and that's what's so brilliant about that first meeting is you're right, Michael's trying. I mean, what Michael kind of has this attitude of what more do you want from me? I'm trying to go legitimate. I'm very successful. I'm contributing to the community. And here's this, you know, Anglo Saxon white American senator saying, I don't really care what you've done. I don't like your people coming over here with your oily hair and everything. And it's like that was the climate of the country at the time. It doesn't matter
1: what you've done. Right. Well, Yeah, in Nevada, you probably hear that. I don't know that you would have heard that. You heard that in Nevada because they were trying to, you know, we're moving west, we're expanding with the economy, and and if any place is going to still hold ethnic prejudices, it's probably a senator from a largely rural, open western state. Um, You probably wouldn't have heard those things from a senator in Illinois or New York. Right. Um, Well, we were just talking about in the last,
0: you know, Discussion: The difference between Vito and Michael, and I think nothing is more stark than the, the dead, the dead prostitute uh, with that senator. That Vito would have never done that.
1: No, he wouldn't have, and and that's one murder Michael never answers for. I mean, why did that that girl have to die just so he could blackmail a senator? You're right.
0: So before we get into the present day, let's just talk about the past scenes with with de niro it's it's unbelievable how much he emulates brando if that character were younger it's not exactly the same but it's the same that you know it looks like if he were younger he even went to the dentist that made the prosthetic for uh brando's mouth and got him to make a smaller one
1: oh that's interesting
0: i didn't know that um also, you know what I never noticed till this first rewatch? I didn't
1: realize that young Clemenza was Bruno Kirby. Yeah, Bruno Kirby, yeah. Well, I don't think he had too many parts before then, did he? No, not really. Um, he doesn't really become a, a name until the 90s almost. But
0: those scenes are are incredible and they start kind of slow. But you know, when he finally kills Don Finucci, that scene's unbelievable. Like the turning the light back on, you know, wrapping the gun in a towel, the towel catching on fire. The little oh, details yeah. are just unbelievable.
1: Right. Right. And uh, it shows you the lengths he was willing to go. And he didn't kill the guy for his own aggrandizement. He did it to help the neighborhood.
0: Right. He was squeezing. And I always thought it was weird with Don Fanucci because he's, he's walking around town and throwing his weight around. He, he doesn't have any like men
1: around him though. Well, you figured he did. I don't know. Yeah, maybe he was just too uh, arrogant to think he needed a, a bodyguard. I don't know. Yeah, and people are kind
0: of, it's a 50-50 with people, how much they really like those earlier scenes. A lot of people think it slows the movie down. I i think maybe some of the ones when he was, you know, a kid could have been shortened a little bit. I don't know. But they're the ones with De Niro are, are amazing. You saw, you know. Well, it was
1: necessary, he, though, to show the contrast between the influences on the father and son, you know? Um, Yeah. This is why Vito became the way he was. And now we're seeing why Michael has become the way he is. Right. So, so let's go back to the present day and
0: I want to talk about John Cazale now. And it's been said a million times. I'm not saying anything new. What a fascinating career this poor guy had. He's only in five movies.
1: Right. and, And
0: all five movies are nominated for best picture. Three of them win. And then he had, he dies from cancer. It's just, uh, he's not nominated for anything in any of them. I would argue he should have been nominated for, for Godfather too. Cause I, I mean, he, he came up in Broadway with Pacino and Pacino actually credits a lot of his acting. Um, I don't want to say success, but his efficient acting to John Cazale teaching him things. Um, they were really close friends and, He's so good as Fredo in Godfather 2. And one of my favorite scenes in the entire series is the living room scene, you know, where he's, you know, it's not what I wanted. I'm not like everyone says, like, dumb. I'm smart. I mean, he's, that, he's incredible in that scene. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taking care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport.
1: I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it! I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb,
0: I'm like smart, and I want respect. I, I right. don't understand. I don't understand why he didn't get nominated.
1: Well, I think it's that problematic. He was never going to be, although he he got good secondary roles. He was never going to be anything more than a, probably a glorified character actor in most directors' minds. I mean, he wasn't glamorous. Uh, most directors could not think against type. You know, they probably didn't think we could put this guy in a serious dramatic lead. Uh, maybe if he had lived they would have worked some of that out. But a lot of actors' careers went that way. There were a lot of great, like George Raft is one that, um, incredibly good actor, but he usually ended up playing some sort of secondary gangster role, or if he did play a lead, it was always a bad guy.
0: So one thing I want to ask you about the whole Fredo-Michael thing, because I can't decide. So Mama Corleone dies, Michael's hiding off in another room by himself during the funeral, and Connie, who you brought up Talia Shire, Yeah, she's amazing. She's an absolute mess at the beginning of the movie. She would tell Michael she wants to marry this guy. The guy's sitting in the room with them, and Michael's like, I don't know this, Merle. I don't know how he makes his money. (laughs) But um, she goes in there and begs him for Fredo's life and says, I want to take care of you, Michael. I mean, that turn she makes right there, she's unbelievable. Right. But she talks him into it. He goes in the next room and he hugs Fredo. I want to ask you, in that moment, do you think Michael was actually trying or do you think he was hugging him knowing he was gonna kill him?
1: No, I think he knew he was gonna kill him. Even at the time that I, either first or second time I saw the movie, it was clear that he, he was just doing this to, to get by in the moment. Well, and I, the only
0: reason it made me wonder is because I wonder if he really was trying there, but then he has that meeting with Tom Hagen and those guys and he makes that comment. He says, I don't want much. I just want to, you know, I just want my enemies dead. And you know, I wonder if he's. If that's when he realized he considered Fredo an enemy.
1: I I don't know that he considered Fredo an enemy so much as the fact that Fredo was too unpredictable to keep around. That even though Fredo was genuinely sorry, he wasn't very smart, and he could probably be misled by somebody again.
0: Yeah, I wonder. I mean, the thing I can never let go of is Michael hears the gunshot on the lake and immediately hangs his head. Right. Uh, so, this man who seems like a cold, ruthless monster for just that one second maybe questions his
1: ruthlessness. Right. Yeah. He rationalized like most people do. You know, my dad used to say that people, there are people that can rationalize anything. And I think Michael was in that, that mode. I mean, he, he had rationalized it. But when the act finally occurs, it's a little difficult to deny it.
0: Yeah. I mean, would you, th- I mean, is that like the biggest gut punch in a movie ever? Michael killing Fredo. I mean, it's always, I mean, half times you watch a movie, it's just, it's, it's terrible every time.
1: Well, it is. It's, it's a stark scene. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I could respond right now to whether it was the most, you know, surprising letdown in a movie ever. I mean, I'd have to give that a lot of thought, but you're right. it, It did have great dramatic import.
0: Now, I also wanted to ask you about the abortion scene because it's 1974, and I don't I don't really know how much abortion was in the lexicon at that time. But the movie takes place in the 50s, which abortion was even more, you know, uh, taboo. So was that a was that a striking scene when you saw it the
1: first time? Did, was it kind of shocking? No, because this movie came out when 74, right? Yep. Um, Roe vs. Wade was passed in 73, and I remember. By the time I started college, one of the most debatable topics, other than the end of the Vietnam War, was the abortion debate. Uh, In fact, that's why I'm kind of tired of the whole thing now. It seems like we've been arguing about it for most of my life. And um, so it was very common to uh, talk about abortion or having people discuss, you know, in private whether they had one. In the 50s, in fact, they made a movie called Detective Story, which is a Broadway play, where uh, the wife of the lead character had an abortion. But when they filmed it in a movie, they had to to really skirt. They couldn't even say the word. You you really had to leave the audience's imagination about what was so upsetting. So, um, yeah, it was controversial, so controversial in the 50s, it couldn't be spoken publicly in most, most places. Well,
0: and the other thing is, so remember, Tom Hagen tells Michael she had a miscarriage. Do you think he knew it was an abortion when he told him that?
1: Probably. He just but Tom is getting to the point where he was getting a little irritated with Michael and and, uh, Michael had sort of demoted him. And, uh, you know, um, even before Vito Corleone died, Michael had decided that he didn't want Tom as a consigliere. So Tom was just kind of the family attorney at that point.
0: Staying on the abortion scene, I want to talk about Pacino specifically. So, uh, you know, we'll get to the Oscars in a minute, but. Pacino famously lost lead actor for this movie, and I mean, he lost to Art Carney. Um, oh yeah, that's right. I remember that. I haven't seen the movie Art Carney was in, but I, I don't know. I, I I don't want to say it's a travesty that Pacino didn't win for this. I think they just thought he was young; he'd win later. But the two scenes that make me just furious that he didn't win were in the abortion scene when she's telling him. Just the acting he's doing with his face. He's not
1: saying a word. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Uh,
0: but also the flashback after Fredo dies to the entire family at the dinner table, how he was so easily able to go back to the shy, sweet Michael in the same movie where he's a monster. I mean, Pacino is just the best.
1: Right. No, he did a great job um in both movies. In fact, he in the first movie, he stuck out probably more than people expected in terms of his talent.
0: So the last thing I want to talk about with Godfather 2 was, so there's this famous plot. Well, actually, before we get into that, I wanted to talk about the drapes. Who do you think opened the drapes in the bedroom?
1: Well, I don't know. Uh, Fredo could have done it, or he could have probably told one of the, the servants that Michael wanted him open. Who knows? You know, I that's, guess that's, that's one, that's yeah, one that's, thing I never really gave a lot of thought to.
0: Well, that's what I think. I don't think Fredo did it. I think he just worked it out to where someone else could come in and do it. I do find it odd, though, that Michael walks into the room and you know five or six beats go by, and then Kay says, "Why are the drapes open?" And he's like, "He's like, you keep them closed all the time, and it took you that long to realize it." But um, there really is a famous plot hole in The Godfather Part Two. So he his his bedroom gets shot up he has a meeting with Frankie five angels at his old house where Frankie's living. And he tells him, I know Hyman Roth was behind this. I need you to pretend to go make peace with the risotto brothers and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out after that. So Frankie five angel goes to see the risotto brothers at their bar and Danny Aiello, you know, grabs him with the cord and says, and so get this, this was an ad lib. Danny Aiello did not have a line in this movie. And he had lived it, and Coppola loved it, so he kept it in. But he says Michael Corleone says hello. Now we know Michael was not behind that. And if you think you're going to kill Frankie Five Angels, what was the point of saying that line? Because what happens is he lives and tries to testify against Michael because he thinks that uh, it's just weird circumstances that everything worked out just
1: that way. Well, I can't remember. Was there anybody else on? Uh on Aiello's side during the movie scene? Was there anybody else standing there? Well,
0: all the Risotto brothers were there, and Aiello starts choking Frankie Fine Angels with the the cord, and he says, Michael Corleone says hello, which was a lie. But because of that lie, when when the police come and break it up and Frankie lives, that's why he decides to testify against Michael.
1: Yeah, maybe Uh, the Risotto brothers didn't know that Michael wasn't behind it. I don't know.
0: No, no, it was a lie to, like, kind of twist the knife before killing him. but the only reason he testifies against michael is cuz of this throwaway line Right, it's, it's, right. probably no, i know
1: i know it was a lie but i don't you're asking me why he he said the lie uh um i don't know really um or what what was the purpose of putting it in the plot unless if somebody thought it would get back to michael i don't know
0: well cuz you think if you're danny Aiello's character you're thinking you're about to kill this guy and then he's you know so I don't know. It's kind of this throwaway line that sets it. I mean, it's a plot device really. It's, right. kind of, it's yeah. a little
1: contrived. It's a one real problem with the movie, but yeah. And I, as I remember the first time I saw the movie, that threw me for a loop too, because I still wasn't sure that um, the guy from Miami, what was his name again? Hyman Roth. I still wasn't sure that Hyman Roth was behind it when I first saw the movie, because they switched scenes so rapidly. And
0: right. So Godfather two, 96% around tomatoes, by the way, 97% for the first one, 96% for the second one. What kind of terrible human being you have to do that you walked out of those movies and said, nope, bad. Um, <laughs> it won Best Picture, De Niro won, Coppola won Best Director, Coppola and Puzo won for Screenplay, won for Art Direction, and Nino Roto won for Score. Oh, by the way, I was going to bring up the score. Um, after he gives Fredo the kiss of death and Fredo runs away, right? the music starts up and I was like, God, this sounds like, Straczynski's Rite of Spring. And so I Googled it and sure enough, Nino Rota and, and Straczynski were good friends and he purposely worked the Rite, of, the Rite of Spring behind underneath the music. And I thought that was interesting. But um,
1: oh, I didn't know that.
0: So Pacino was nominated. Uh, Gazo, who played Frankie Five Angels, was nominated. Strasberg, who played Hyman Roth, was nominated. Talia Shire was nominated. Costumes uh, was also nominated. And what an incredible year for movies because this is the same year Chinatown comes out. The conversation really great year for movies.
1: Yeah, it was a good year for movies. I'm trying to think; even the year before was good too. Um, there was a couple of good years in the mid '70s. There were a lot of great movies came out, and a lot of great actors were working.
0: Yeah, '73 was the Last Detail and uh, The Long Goodbye. God, goodness,
1: uh, The Sting.
0: Yep. So all this time goes by, and Coppola doesn't want to do another one. He says that's the story of the godfather michael's got to live with it um but he had two big failed movies in the 80s one being one for the heart and he needed the money (laughs) so he finally agrees to do the third godfather but his intention was to just do an epilogue
1: uh go ahead let me ask a question um he had, he didn't make very many friends with the studio when he did uh, Apocalypse Now. Um, And I was with United Artists, right? Uh, I I don't recall. But a lot of people were kind of turned off because even though it was uh, an award-winning movie and made a lot of uh, money, it was horribly expensive and drawn out shooting process. So I wonder if, uh, you know, part of the part of why it was broke could be traced back to that. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just speculating. Yeah. Well, that wasn't that
0: it was, he had one from the heart and another movie were just complete failures. So he lost a lot of money. So he needed the money. So he starts working on Godfather three. He wants it to be an epilogue. Everyone's getting hyped up. And I rewatched it for the first time in probably 15 years. And I remembered it not being that bad, but, it's, it's not great it's just not great and there's things about it that are good right. but the movie as a whole it's just kind of the parts of it are just slow and boring and the other thing i think that really hurt it was there was too many new people and i just didn't care about any of them
1: right uh yeah in fact um vincent the guy the the Ill- illegitimate son of uh Sonny, um, played by andy garcia Played by Andy Garcia. And I don't remember seeing Andy Garcia before that movie. Um
0: oh sure. He was in the Untouchables.
1: Oh, was The Untouchables did, uh, did Untouchables come out after or before? Yeah that before. Movie? Before okay. No, I take that back. I had seen him. <laughs> um he's he's pretty good. He's he's
0: really going for it in a few scenes. He's a little bit of overacting, but um, he's got some incredible scene. The scene where the two guys break in his house when he's with Bridget Fonda, he's amazing in that scene.
1: Right. Yeah. But
0: Pac- Pacino is excellent in this movie, and it's the first Godfather movie he wasn't nominated for, but he's really good in this movie. Um, yeah,
1: and I think the story, thematically, is very important. Uh, they, maybe they could have edited the movie better or, or changed the writing a little bit to make it more watchable for some people, but I think the... Uh, the thematic uh, significance is really brought home at the of of all three of the pictures at the end of that movie. No, I agree. and I think that the the church is the one
0: element of that heritage that has never been brought up, well, except for the you know the christening and things like that. but the guilt, the Catholic guilt and everything, but I think I mean, Michael had a, a multitude of different kinds of guilt, but bringing the church right. in, I thought was was really interesting. Uh, It's a little it's a little convoluted, though, the way they brought it
1: in. Um, Well, except that Michael had invested in a in a side company that was the church had invested in uh, to, uh, to help the church out. And that's where a lot of the conflict came from, because he wouldn't let some of the at least one mafia head in on the investment. And that's how he got to know that that cardinal that. He heard his confession and gave him absolution. The cardinal, but later, went on to be Pope John Paul I. The other, Another good thing about
0: it, Talia Shire playing Connie, I love the evolution because she says at the end of two, I want to take care of you. And now, instead of being a mess, she's this very collected, incredibly loyal person to Michael to the point right. where she's helping him with assassinations. She gives that guy the poison cannolis and um, it, it, it her arc. Is one of the
1: most fascinating, uh, least talked about things in the series, but her arc is fascinating. Well, yeah, it is. And Michael, I think Michael was losing his his taste for that kind of violence too by that point. Um, It was kind of like Lady Macbeth, you know, inducing her husband to commit murder, sort of thing. Oh, Dad, I like that. That's a that's a great comparison. That's perfect.
0: I also want to say he's only about half the movie. I love Joe Montana, but I don't know about this casting choice playing this this mobster because I just didn't find him intimidating.
1: (laughs) Yeah. As I recall, that wasn't a very strongly portrayed character. That's that's for sure. So uh, other than the the messy plot, I I think the two biggest
0: problems are well-established. One, Robert Duvall did not come back over money issues. And I kind of don't blame him. He said in an interview later, you know, if they, p- they paid Al twice as much as me, fine, but they were paying him like four or five times as much as me. And I right. just didn't think that was fair, but well, the original,
1: go ahead. Plus you got to remember he won best actor for um, tender mercies. Yes. And he had that behind him and I don't blame him. You know he wasn't getting the he's an excellent actor, and even if he hadn't run an Academy Award, any decent director should have recognized that. Um, so yeah, I, I remember when he did when that happened, it was before the movie was shot, it was quite controversial. Um, when Duvall wouldn't be in the movie because he felt like he was being slighted, and I don't blame him. Yeah, well, the original
0: plan was to make him a lot of the focus of the story because his son is in the movie, he was becoming a priest. But a lot of it was going to be about Tom Hagen coming to terms with things and reconciling with Michael a little bit. And then with his son entering the the church. So that this whole plot point, which I think would have made the movie a lot better. But if Robert Duvall's not coming back, you guys couldn't have done better than George Hamilton.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I wondered about that at the time too. I mean, it's not because George Hamilton wouldn't have been capable of drama, but he hadn't really done any serious drama in 30 years. Um, he was always considered a, a lightweight actor, but I think because of the kind of parts he accepted.
0: Yeah, it, he's not <sighs> terrible, but it's just not. It's just it's just distracting, right? Um, and then of course the other thing. So so for the role of Michael's daughter, obviously Sophia Coppola, who has gone on to be a really great director. She gets right. cast. Now they do try, they, they reached out to Julia Roberts. She didn't want to do it. And it looked like Winona Ryder was going to take it, but she passed out in a audition and took a break from acting due to quote unquote exhaustion. I think exhaustion means partying and drugs, but uh, I think it was almost a last minute thing that Coppola got his daughter to play and she's just awful. She's just an yeah, awful, distractingly awful actor.
1: Um, she, uh, she pulls the plot along, but you're right. At the time, I thought they could have done better than this. Uh, I mean, thankfully, she's
0: not in a ton of the scenes, but the whole subplot with her and Andy Garcia cousins being into each other—I don't know. I it was all so odd. Um, but what I do like about the movie is Michael and Kay, not fixing their relationship, but I don't know. That dynamic was really interesting.
1: Well, it showed that, you know, she has a line in that where, you know, I, I, you were much something about the effect that you were much more likable when you were just a common gangster than you are now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you're trying to be somebody, you know? And I think at the end they, they did end up having a begrudging mutual respect for one another.
0: Yeah. Um, but you were talking about Michael, uh, his confession when he breaks down with that Cardinal and cries about killing Fredo, I I mean, when the second movie ended, you didn't think you were ever going to get that, that contrition from him. I betrayed my wife.
1: Gone, my son. I betrayed myself. I killed men. And I ordered men to be killed. Go on, my son. Go on. I ordered the death of my brother. He injured me. I killed my mother's son. I killed my father's son. <laughs> Our are
0: terrible.
1: And it is just that you suffer. Right. No, that's good. And and of course, um, maybe it's a good time to throw in here what I, I once saw an interview with Copeland, don't ask me where, because it was, a I don't know if it's a documentary or a TV interview, but he was asked about, you know, Michael's character, you know, and then he, in this, this movie, and somebody said, well, what do you think that Vito Corleone would have said to Michael when Michael got to heaven or Michael got in the afterlife? And Vito, he said, Vito would have come up to him and said, you did the one thing, you didn't do the one thing you were supposed to do, and that's protect your family. You failed. Now, well, that's an interesting thing for Coppola to say.
0: Yeah, he didn't start writing the story, but obviously became invested in the story and it helped Puzo write the screenplays. Um, but as problematic as this movie is, the ending is incredible. Um, you know, obviously the tragedy happens where um, Michael's almost assassinated, but instead his daughter is shot, dies right. in his arms. Right. And nothing is said. Everyone cries, everyone screams, and then it right. just cuts cuts to Michael as an old man in Sicily, right. and he dies
1: alone and full of regret. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, at least by Godfather three the plot doesn't matter as much as the characters and that's, and when you see Michael at the end, you know, falling out of his chair and dying back in Sicily uh, you kind of get that idea that you always knew it was going to end this way. And, and when Vito, what, go ahead. No. I and mean, what he accomplished before that, that, that was supposed to matter.
0: And when Vito, i just like the symbolism, but when Vito died, he died with an orange and right. when Michael died, he died with an orange. Uh, right. That was a little, that was clever, but you know, I don't think it was necessary. No, no. Um, so Godfather three, 86% Rot Tomatoes, no wins, but it was nominated for picture, Andy Garcia uh, for supporting actor, Coppola for director, cinematography, art direction, editing, and original song. So dad, now this time has passed. What do you think this trilogy's legacy is in terms of film?
1: I don't know that I have an answer for that. I really don't know in terms of uh, cinema what its legacy would be, other than it it was the first time that um, a movie or a series of movies, he gave the American public, try to give them serious insight into uh, what it was like to grow up generationally as an ethnic immigrant, you know, especially um, probably by the end of the 1930s, um, next to African Americans and probably um, Latinos, uh, Italians were the most um, abused of the minorities in terms of prejudice, in terms of ethnic prejudice. And I don't think, and I think this sort of gave you an insight into what that, a little bit of what that world was about, but everybody got so carried away with the fact that this is all about the mafia. I don't know how much of that got through, but I really don't, in terms of, uh, of, I mean, the first movie was uh, of high... I mean, the camera angles were terrific. Um, I mean, the movie was edited well, except that it left out a couple of key, key bits of information. Um, I don't think that the editing and the... Um, especially the editing of the second movie was was great, but the story was good. Um, so, and the third movie, you almost had to make it, even though Coppola said he didn't want to do it again, but you had to bring things full circle. Um, but I don't really know in terms of entire history of uh, filmmaking, what kind of, a of, um, effect it would have overall. I mean, I certainly think, you know, the movies are
0: revered and often cited as, you know, maybe the greatest movie ever. It's in the talk, at least in the conversation. Um, I think you write things like camera angles, uh, storytelling and pacing, uh, giving young actors a chance, and uh, certainly complex characters and complex themes, which I don't think The Godfather was the first to do. But to have a movie made up entirely of not inherently good people, but liking them and seeing the complexities of almost being okay with some of the bad things that they do, I think that's
1: helped make other complex stories. Well, right, and that's the key to any good story, literature, um, and that's that's kind of true in life and human nature. Um, nobody is perfect. And even people who are um, very much less than perfect have qualities that that we can associate ourselves with or that we can we can like. Um, and that's why that's why I uh, found Pulp Fiction so intriguing, because it want, really wanted to get that point across. Well, that
0: was great, Dad. I appreciate the contribution you've made today
1: <laughs> okay well thanks
0: um i usually end the show with recommendations but i think for recommendations i'm going to say to everyone listening um if you've never seen the godfather trilogy or if you haven't watched it in a while need to revisit it i just can't recommend it enough it, it, it's amazing how well it holds up after all these years but to you dad i recommend we've been talking about coppola and we have talking about pacino and de niro uh i beg of you i beseech you Please finally watch Apocalypse Now and rewatch Heat.
1: Okay, I'll work on it.
0: <laughs> All right, Dad, I appreciate it. Uh, so, for the marquee spotlight, I am Spencer Bailey for Chelsea Burnett saying we'll see you.
1: Thanks for listening. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland with music composed and produced by Josh Colopy and cover art created by Taylor Ingle. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates on new episodes. And if you like the show, please write a review and share with others.